The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. So glad you're joining us. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we do what we always try to do here on Herd Tell. We're going to try to turn down the noise on the news cycle, talk about some things that actually matter, skip all the caterwauling and what don't, get to the information that we need to better discern the times we live in. And we got a couple ways we're going to do that today. Uh, Jack Rollett's on the program, one of our great UK contributors, going to talk a little UK politics, haven't for a while some important stuff going on across the pond. There's a national scandal involving school buildings that didn't get open because come to find out the concrete's bad in them. That's just exacerbating the embattled government of Rishi Sunak and the Tories. We'll talk about the political landscape, how it's affecting culture, the problems in the UK. A lot of them don't have answers or generational type problems. Jack Rowland on the program today. Also, good friend of ours, Gary and Frankel, returns to the program. He wrote about uh, this Gadsden flag incident with the kid at the school who uh, the teachers got overzealous. It's a ridiculous viral video. There's a lot more to this story than just what went viral and just what got elevated. Matter of fact, how it got elevated is part of the story. Gary and Frankel is going to talk about that because this keeps happening. You can change the particulars and the names on who does it. But why things go viral, big part of understanding how our news cycle works, especially in social media and news media. First, let's have some fun. We need to take a break from politics for a second. Uh, Back on September the 5th was the birthday of one of the things that make America great. One of the things that exemplifies the best of American culture and American ingenuity. Of course, I'm talking about Waffle House. Yes, I know. I talk about Waffle House a lot. I've written about Waffle House a lot. I have Waffle House on the background when you're looking in the videos here. By the way, the Starry Night Waffle House picture from our good friend, artist Matt Dawson. Go get a copy of that yourself. Great artist. Thank him for that. Waffle House, do you actually know the story about it? If you go in almost any Waffle House, especially the newer ones, somewhere on the walls, there's going to be a picture of two guys in World War II uniforms. It's a black and white photo. Uh, in the Waffle House nearest my house. Uh, it's at the booth on the end near where you go to the bathrooms at the end of the kitchen. That's kind of where I prefer to spit it, sit anyway. It's kind of a back corner. Uh, it's right over that booth. I always talk to my kids about it and they roll their eyes because they he- hate hearing this story. There's two guys in that picture. Okay. One of them, a guy named Joe Rogers, 
back in 1937, his teenage National Guardsmen were out on maneuvers and got lost out in the swamp uh, near the Mississippi River. They were trying to follow this levee to figure out where they were. And in the dark of the night, they saw this light, this yellow light piercing the darkness. It was just an old uh, shack where a guy had been fishing and other things. But the guy took him in, fed him turnip greens, fat back and cornbread and drank coffee from tin cups. I can't recall a better meal, Joe Rogers said. It was an image that stuck with him the rest of his life. He went on to be a B-24 pilot during World War II and came home and was working as a cook and a manager at a place called Toddle House. There's still Toddle Houses around certain places, uh, but working a short-order grill, he was kind of in a little bit of a dead-end job, and they didn't franchise, and they didn't really offer any way up, so him and his wife and his young family, he worked his way into management and regional management, but he felt like he was just kind of stuck. He wanted to own his own restaurant and do it his own way. So he moved from Tennessee down to Georgia and he needed to buy a house. So he hit up this local realtor named Tom Forkner. Now, Tom's an interesting fella. He, too, was a World War II vet. They immediately hit it off, became good friends. And in fact, Tom ended up selling him the house right beside his and started a lifelong friendship. Tom actually wasn't a real estate agent. He was a lawyer by trade and would very coyly, without telling you much else about it, would tell people that he was in the Army Corps of Engineers and was a supply officer during World War II, which is true. And when you look at his picture in the Waffle House of the day, you'll see the Army Corps of Engineer uh, insignia on his uniform lapels. But he was downplaying his actual service. He's actually part of the Manhattan Project, you know, the project to build the atomic bomb when they ran the materials um, from Tennessee out to New Mexico, he would be the intelligence officers that would ride in the trucks over 50 hours one way back and forth, and they'd swap drivers nonstop. This is before interstates. You can imagine what this was like. He was vital to it. In fact, he was working um, in the offices up in Manhattan when the war ended, was offered government positions, didn't want him, went home, didn't really want to practice law, so he'd started working in his family's real estate business until he could figure out what he wanted to do. That's where he met Joe. Not, all, not only neighbors, they became quick friends, and Joe told him his problem where he wanted to open his own uh, fast food type restaurant, but his current employers with Huddle House, they didn't franchise or anything, and uh, Tom couldn't figure out a better idea, so they went into business together and started the very first Waffle House, September the 5th, 1955, Avondale Estates in Atlanta, Georgia. Worked out pretty well. They both died multimillionaires. There's now over 2,000 Waffle Houses all over the world. But did you know that? Did you know it was just two guys, two World War II vets? And one of them was on one of the most important things ever, especially if you saw the recent Oppenheimer film. He was a vital part of that. And so was Joe. When they opened the restaurant, Joe thought back to that meal in 1937. when He was cold, wet, hungry, tired. And that yellow light piercing the darkness. That's where you got the idea for 24-hour service. Good food fast. Good food from friendly folks. Doesn't matter who you are, you walk in, you get fed. Everybody from Anthony Bourdain to folks you've never heard of now loves and appreciates Waffle House. It's one of my favorite places to go. Now, I know every now and then you'll see the viral video of people fighting there, but most of the time... You'll just find good folks really wanting it. I've wrote a couple pieces about it. I'll link to them in the notes, including the one that has this history on it. How these two guys, these two veterans, 
These two friends created a culinary empire by having a very simple idea. Um, Tom would talk about how they would scout locations. He would just park his automobile at about two in the morning at an intersection, see how much traffic there was. If there's a bunch of traffic, it's a good spot. Let's put a new one up. 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, so reliable that FEMA bases their disaster scale off whether or not the Waffle Houses are open. Why do we open with that on a culture and politics? Well, one, it's just fun. Who doesn't like Waffle House? Number two is it's a good story about how American culture and business and stick to to American veterans who love their country, who've given thousands and thousands of jobs to people and treated them pretty fairly if you look at their corporate policies. It's a good story. We talk a lot of culture and politics here in a bad way, including on this program. We're going to talk about some untoward folks and some unworthy actors and how they're not treating us all fairly. But how about some two war two vets who built a wonderful company off some pretty basic things? Friendship, wanting to do it better than what they had, not really knowing what to do with their life after doing <laughs> literally, in Tom Fortner's case, helping save the world or at least change the world. Then what do you do? They forged a bond and a friendship and a business empire and something that right now, if you want to, just about anywhere in America, you can go get a pretty good meal at a decent price real quick, and it'll be good. And I'd love to meet you there. Waffle House is a great American story. It should inspire all of us to kind of stop and think a minute. Something as simple as good food for folks can mean a lot. We're talking about these cultural issues and politics. Let's keep that in mind. There's important things that happen over little scattered and covered hash browns. A little more of that, a little less caterwauling, a little less fighting, a little less hating each other for reasons that somebody else came up with in the first place, and a little more places like Waffle House where we can just all get together, have a meal, and then go back out into whatever the world has for us after a quick respite. So thank you, Joe. Thank you, Tom. Thank you to all the Waffle House workers on this birthday. We open with that because usually we close the show with a good thing. Waffle House is a good thing because a couple of guys made sure it was a good thing. And it should inspire all of us to go do more good things. Happy birthday, Waffle House. I do love you so. And we'll do more Herd Tell right after this. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's go across the pond. Been a little while since we touched in with our UK contributors. Got to get them back in the swing of things. He's back again, Jack Rowlett, one of our good friends over there. Young Voices contributor, does a lot of writing and such over there. We talk a little planning and laws and productivity and capital investment stuff. All that's going to wind up into what's going on over the pond today. How are you, sir? Great to have you back on the program. I'm good, thank you. It's good to be back. I, I've been an observer of uh, UK politics for quite some time. I usually listen to PMQs because it's in the mornings for us over here. You know, it's usually about mm-hmm. 7, 730 in the morning. It comes on. I, I've seen a lot of funny stuff. I've seen a lot of serious stuff in UK politics. We can't open the schools because the concrete's bad is a new one. I did not have that on my bingo card. I don't know that I expected that, but this thing's really blown up. Part of it's just an infrastructure thing and of course part of it's the ongoing political situation we learned during COVID though you start screwing with people's kids that cuts through a lot of political stuff really really fast and when you start having I think it's 150 schools in Britain another 30 some in Scotland now and they're still finding these this is stuff that cuts through politics and gets people upset in a hurry what's it like on the ground with this current emerging school situation well, people are absolutely furious about it. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's it's conjuring a lot of memories of kind of the distance learning and remote learning that parents and kids had to go through during the lockdowns. Um, and people are sort of shuddering at the thought of having to to go back to that. Um, I think there's a, there's a lot of anger that they've waited until now to deal with it. Um, in the UK, the schools went back on Monday um, after a sort of couple of months uh, summer break. So if this had been sort of identified and the government had started to deal with this earlier on in the summer, we potentially wouldn't be in the position we're in now where those 150 schools, as you mentioned, are closing. Um, there's also the other dynamic that the government has had a sort of school rebuilding and renovation policy program over the last few years. That's sort of been a long-term ambition of theirs. And that Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, when he was chancellor, so when he was in charge of the, the country's finances, he cut back that school rebuilding program. So far fewer schools were renovated than were initially planned. It was cut back from, I think, around 100 to around 50. Um, and so there's there's the idea that, that he's partially responsible for this as well, and that the government, like with so many other problems in Britain, should have acted sooner. Yeah, and part of it, look, the timing of this is really interesting because not only schools is starting, Parliament's just coming back from a break. We have the overarching political situation on top of that. This is kind of a really bad time of the year to have a scandal like this, right, because it hits about three or four things all at the same time. Folks aren't uh, familiar with the English system, though. Parliament coming back, school starting all at the same time. That's not when you want to have a scandal. No, no, it's absolutely not. And we we sort of, uh, in the media here, we've been discussing over the past few weeks the fact that Rishi Sunak, you know, Conservatives are far behind in the polls, and he really wanted to use this autumn to reset the agenda, to start taking control of the issues, 
talking about the things that the Conservatives wanted to talk about rather than sort of ceding the agenda to Labour. And he comes back to this issue. And it hasn't been helped by the way the government have handled it either. We've had the education minister here. She was caught swearing on camera um, to a Sky News reporter in the UK about how, you know, she was the only one to have tried to do anything about it and that everybody else had sat on their backsides. So it's really not a good look for the government. And also it's important to note as well that this um, rack concrete, this concrete that only lasts 30 years, um, it's not just schools and there, there's it's hospitals as well, it's court buildings, it's sort of all state buildings are potentially affected by it. They're even now actually um, conducting uh, an investigation in parliament itself, uh, like of the, the parliamentary grounds to see if this rack concrete is used there. And that there's potentially, you know, it's going to start crumbling in Parliament itself. Yeah. Uh, Jack Rowlett joining us. Let's talk Rishi Sunak for just a second, though. He's been uh, he may make it. He may make it to a year. He's coming up on a year in office. So, you know, after the the debacle with his predecessor, we just had a political article in Europe uh, here about two days ago, the the Rishi Sunak uh, reset. We've heard this probably three or four times over the last year. He's got a lot of churn uh, in his staff. He just had his comm directors quit again. A lot of the old hands have kind of left that were with him last year. Is this a prime minister? Just setting aside the politics of it aside, he seems like he just cannot get a course to his premiership. It seems like he just bounces from thing to thing. When you're always reacting, it's hard to look like you're having leadership. You know, again, not just politics, just optics wise. He just seems to always be chasing it in the last year. And it doesn't look like that's going to get better anytime soon. And that's not what you really want going into a, a looming general election that's got to be coming sometime in the near future. Yes. Yeah, I think what the the country and the Conservative Party has realised is that actually Sunak's sort of popularity and the respect for him before he was Prime Minister was pretty much entirely down to the free money he gave out during COVID. And that actually, you know, this is he's, he's just not very good at politics, right? He's, he's not very good at, at, at day-to-day politics. He's not very good at making decisions. He's a real managerialist. He will always go for the easy option, even if it's not the thing that's best for the country or even indeed for his party. He keeps, as you say, trying to reset the agenda and then some new scandal or policy problem emerges and they get knocked off course again. And it's sort of the red lights are flashing on the dashboard in sort of every area. We've got massive problems with house building. House building this month has fallen to its lowest level um, since the pandemic. He's got problems in the NHS, which has its annual winter crisis that we're about to go into as well. Then he's got this rack problem too. Um, I think really the only reason he's still there is because the Conservative Party has sort of exhausted all of its other options, so they might as well stick with him. But he doesn't seem in control. And I think a lot of the things that people liked about him, say, a year or two years ago, that he kind of, you know, he was a businessman, you know, he worked for, for a bank, he, he knows his way around the finances, he's serious, he's disciplined. Now they see him as detached and out of touch, and, like, he doesn't, he doesn't really know the, the struggles that ordinary people are facing. And the optics are absolutely awful. And the conservative poll ratings are, are, are really diving again. And a lot of that progress that um, we saw him make after we got rid of Liz Truss, um, it's kind of being reversed now as well. Yeah, Jack Rowlett joining us. Uh, that's what Richie Sunak has the blame for, which, by the way, he's one of the richest men in Britain. If you didn't know, he might come off as out of touch. You weren't paying attention to start with, but that's neither here nor there. Some of this isn't his fault, though, because the overarching story in British politics since we've started doing this show the last four or five years, though, is 
the Tories just have an inertia problem. They've been in power for 13 years now. It doesn't matter if you were doing a bang up job, you would just start to hit the wall for being in power for so long. Now there's a lot of things conflicting at once. There's a couple of things that have kind of bumped them along the way. Of course, you had the Brexit thing. You had the COVID thing. They just don't seem like they got another wild card to get out of the inevitable decline of you've been in power for a really long time. Things are going to happen. And now there's a lot of stuff. I, are they just out of cards to pull to try to hold on to power here? Because that's kind of how it feels beyond the issues, beyond the individual politics. That just kind of feels like where this is heading. Is that how it feels to you there on the ground? Yeah, definitely. I think there's there's just this this sort of sense that it's time for a change now. Um, that we just there's not much enthusiasm for Labour or Keir Starmer, but there's just this sense that you know anyone but the Tories, we just need to get rid of them. They just don't know what they're doing. They've been in power for too long. And at a certain point, I think the the dynamic changes where the tendency of the public to sort of give the government the benefit of the doubt and to sort of take everything they do and interpret it in a positive light changes at a certain point. Um, over the course of your time in power, and then suddenly everything becomes interpreted in a negative light, whether it's the government's fault or not, whether they were badly intentioned or not. And that's where we are now, where the government literally cannot do anything without receiving criticism, without the public um, taking it in a bad light. And the fact that they're fundamentally not that competent and have this kind of policy inertia problem as well um, exacerbates things. It, ma it makes it so much worse for them. Jack Rowell joining us. Let's talk about Keir Starmer for just a second. Um, you know, look, at some point he's getting in number 10. It kind of feels inevitable at this point. Uh, he invoked cowboys in PMQs. And I'm like, well, you don't understand what that term used because if cowboys built that stuff, it lasts forever. Has he, let, let's start big picture and then we'll, we'll pin down on this. Has he put the Corbin era behind labor? I know he's not excited but he was putting out a dumpster fire, to be fair to him. He had a lot of internal problems. They had the Jeremy Corbyn, which you just had to get him off the scene because he had mm -hmm. gone toxic. Has he put that problem aside? Because then you can be as boring as you can because the other guy's drowning. All you got to be is steady. Has he managed to accomplish that much before you get to any of the other stuff? Yeah, I think he has. No one's really talking about Jeremy Corbyn anymore, other than occasionally the Conservatives trying to sort of pin Jeremy Corbyn on, on Starmer, and it, it, it just doesn't work. Um, if we look at the people that Starmer has surrounded himself with, uh, Blairites associated with, with centrist Labour Prime Minister from the 2000s, Tony Blair, reshuffled his cabinet, a shadow cabinet, over the weekend, um, and that's continuing today, and he's promoted a load of sort of centrist uh, MPs into the shadow cabinet and he sidelined a bunch of prominent uh, members of the soft left and the left, like Lisa Nandy, who was shadow housing minister. Um, so he has really reformulated the party 
people's impression of it is different and now actually in a way they have the opposite problem in that under jeremy corbyn there was this idea that they were they were almost too exciting in a way they couldn't deliver their policy agenda it was totally unrealistic it would have really damaging implications for the country because it was a fantasy whereas now the general sort of complaint is that that he doesn't have enough vision that there aren't enough policies there isn't enough of an idea of, of what starmerism is or where he wants to take the country. But the party itself is certainly in a much better position. He's absolutely wrested control away from the Corbynites. And he, his sort of wing of the party now controls all the sort of instruments of power within Labour. Yeah, Jack Rowlett joining us. Okay, that's enough to probably win you an election. Looking down the road a little bit, because we want to stay big picture here and, and, and keep the noise of this down a little bit. Let's say they win the general election whenever that is, and it'll probably be decently sweeping. The fundamental problems that the Tories and Rishi Sunak are dealing with are not going to magically get fixed just because labor gets in the power. There's some real foundational structural problems in the UK right now. There's the housing crisis. There's an individual debt crisis that's starting to bubble up right now. There's a shrinking economy because you have a population problem now. There's some stuff that is generational type problems hitting the UK right now. So when labor gets in there, they're going to have a mandate. They're probably going to get a year or two to try to do some stuff with it. But they've got a real steep hill to climb anyway. What are they going to actually be able to do here other than just kind of nibble at this thing at the edges? Because, look, the immigration problems aren't going to go away. The economic mm -hmm. problems aren't going to go away. They're going to have a steep hill to climb, even though they might get a little bit of a honeymoon problem uh, period, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such an unenviable legacy for them that the, the Tories are going to leave. And as, as you mentioned, there are these generational um, sort of long term issues as well. I think that the positive from Labour's perspective is that they're actually trying to grapple with some of those issues. So you take the housing one, for instance, for a long time, we've had parties, both both main parties here going into elections saying they're going to build a bunch more houses and solve the housing prices. But then when they come into power, they don't want to make any of the tough trade-offs that are necessary to actually change our planning laws and build more houses. Labour now under Starmer are, are talking about housing a lot more. They're wanting to build on the green belts, which is part of the UK around our cities, which is currently restricted. Um, and you can't build houses or other kinds of properties on it. And that's restricting the growth of our cities, having a massive uh, sort of downward pressure effect on economic growth. He's pledging to change that. And he's also pledging to kind of change how local government funding works. So there's a kind of carrot and stick approach to the kind of local governments in parts of the UK saying, well, you will get more government funding from Westminster if you build more houses. So I think that's a positive thing because that could have a, a really big effect um, on economic growth. I think also looking at some of the other problems like we've got in the, the health service, fundamentally, the, the current NHS model doesn't work. It's been impossible for the Tories to change it because they're the party of the right. They're associated with fears over like full privatization of the NHS, if you like. So anytime the Tories try to change healthcare policy, it becomes a toxic mess. And everyone accuses them of wanting to kind of sell, sell off our healthcare sector to the US. Labour, because people interpret Labour as being the party of healthcare in the UK, they set up the NHS in the 1940s. They have more room to maneuver. And the shadow health minister, Wes Streeting, is talking about involving the private sector more, changing the model, changing how we deal um, with preventative care as well. So I think Labour has more room to manoeuvre than the Tories have done because the Tories have sort of boxed themselves into a corner on so many issues from healthcare to housing to Brexit. 
Yeah, Jack Rowley. It's interesting you phrase it that way about boxing in. I was reading the snap stuff from the. Let's zoom back into the the moment here now. Um, you know, even the Guardian, who is not friendly to the Tories or Richie Sunak, said, "Look, Richie Sunak's really good at things like PMQ. He sounds confident. He presents well, but it's also hopeless. There's this feeling that the country has kind of tuned him out, or at least they're not mm-hmm. listening to it because he does present well. He's well spoken. He he's good on camera. He's good in the sound bites. Right." He's good at those one-liners, even though he's not spectacular like a Johnson or somebody like that. He he never embarrasses himself at the dispatch box, right? He's always steady. Is that thing about them just being turned out, is this school thing because it gets personal, because it brings up a prior thing, because it was a scheme from his prior work before he was prominent? Is this going to kind of be the breaking point where people are just kind of done and like, okay, we're not going to listen anymore? Because it kind of feels that way from afar. Is that fair to say, though? Yeah, I think that it's fair to say. I think the the sort of door was only very, very narrowly open before this crisis to sort of the Tories coming back and and making some some electoral progress. I think the door is now completely shut. People don't want to listen to them anymore. They are tuning them out. As you say, I think in in a sense, it becomes a perfect metaphor, this crisis, because it it feels like the UK is falling apart, like uh, everything's expensive and nothing works. And now we have a crisis that comes along about the state actually falling apart, our buildings actually being on the verge of falling down and, and crumbling. So it, it's it's just such a toxic um, image for the for the conservatives. And I think Rishi Sunak is in a position where he he's he's not going to be able to change anything in the amount of time he has left until the general election. So they're sort of in electoral survival mode now, focusing on their core votes. The problem being that their core vote is older people in the UK who own housing, who rely on state pensions, who rely on sort of um, the NHS. And so a lot of the um, fundamental reforms that you'd need to make to boost growth to get us out of the stagnation are potentially going to upset those voters in the short term. So Sunak can't actually do anything about that and still protect his core votes. So he's, he's got a totally, totally thankless task. And so far, he's sort of been relying on his own personal charm, his own image of this kind of decent guy who gets down to the task at hand to kind of pull them through and now with this crisis i think that image is going and then really what do the conservatives have left Yeah, Jack Rowlett. Okay, elephant in the room. The theory of the case on general election has been the Tories wanted to try to get some kind of sliver of good news and then call an election and then just hope for the best. Do they move off that plan now and do they start kind of just looking for a point of we're just going to need to rip the Band-Aid off at some point here in the near future and get this over with and hand this mess to the other team and try to regroup? Is, is that the new calculation now? Because it doesn't look like there's anything on the horizon that's going to be an election game changer or even really, frankly, not to be too harsh about it, to make it competitive. Um, I know local council level, they'll be able to maybe do some things in certain areas. But is, is that kind of the calculus that's going to change now? Is like at some point we're just going to have to take our medicine now? Yeah, I think it's looking increasingly likely the election is going to be summer of next year. The parliament can theoretically run until January of 2025. 
Um, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think from the Tories' perspective, yeah, absolutely, things aren't going to get much better. And actually, there's the possibility that if they leave it right until the end of the parliament, things get worse and they end up having a general election at the you know midwinter when the NHS is on its knees, when people don't want to go out and vote, particularly older voters, um, when the weather is kind of miserable and things are dark and that creates a really negative mood and people will want to kick the government out even more than they already do. Um, I think things things are unlikely to improve before next summer, but doing it when the weather is hot, when pressure on public services is at, it, at its lowest, um, will give them the best chance. I think also there's potentially a, a sort of sliver of hope in that if in inflation falls and if as we're as is now being projected in the uk that we don't go into recession growth is going to be really anemic and we're going to stagnate but we're not going to technically go into recession that that provides a sliver of hope and that potentially he can go into that election in summer of next year saying well i've managed to keep us out of recession and that that could protect some seats for the conservatives yeah but even that's going to hurt him because he came in saying the opposite so that's going to they're just going to play that clip over and over again when he first came into office and beat him over the head with it jack rowley all right we've been we've been beating up on the uk friends a little bit i always like to ask his what what from our side of the pond is hitting the headlines and breaking through the media over there whether it's a silly thing or a political thing or whatever uh you do the same thing we do when you want to distract yourself you look at the hot mess of u.s government we look at the mess of uk government give me one or two things that's poking through the headlines over there that y'all are seeing well, obviously, I think the, the main headlines that we've been seeing uh, in the UK is regarding Trump's sort of various indictments and the various trials that are coming forth. Um, you know, his mugshot definitely went viral across UK social media, and we've been talking about that a lot. Um, so I think that's the, that's the main thing. You sort of can't really get away from that in the kind of world pages of the British newspapers at the moment. And also just uh, seeming insane from here that that Biden is seemingly going for the democratic nomination again um that you know he seems so old and doddery and ridiculous and you know people in the uk i think think it's it's somewhat hilarious and and bemusing that he's still there because he seems you know it seems a uh, impressive that he manages to go through each day remembering his own name at the moment to be fair the the rich young and athletic thing isn't exactly working out you know gangbusters for y'all so just to be fair uh jack rowlett always i think that's possibly the first time rishi sunak's been described as young and athletic Uh, comparatively look elections are political elections are policy but a lot of elections is just who are you standing on the stage across from and all biden has to do is not fall off the stage and stand there and and trump's emulating himself right now you know, and Richie Sunak's got the opposite problem right now where he's he's flailing, flailing, flailing. So all Keir Starmer's got to do is stand there and not look like a drowning man. And he's probably going to be the better option to most eyes. You know, we 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 dig into politics a lot. But to the average person, that's a lot of politics for something like prime minister or president. Just who do I want to see on my TV for the next four years or whatever? Mm. That's what a lot of it comes down to. So like Keir Starmer right now, all he's got to do is not look like he's on fire and he'll probably win. And all Biden's got to do is look like he's not getting indicted, which he's probably not. And he's probably going to win. And it's really that simple to politics. Maybe we overthink it sometimes. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think um, in in a sense, the UK's sort of issue is a less less drastic sort of version of what you've got in the US, where actually neither of the main two party leaders are particularly popular. Um, they're not inspiring much of the public. Um and actually, it's it's just going to come down to who people think is most competent to lead the country. And that's going to be Labour here. 
I would expect, I would hope it would be Biden if the choice is, is Biden versus Trump again. Although I've seen uh, that polling in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend saying that people think that that Trump is sort of more competent than Biden, um, although people think Biden is nicer. So I guess it, it comes down to that that sort of distinction of, of, of whether you're going to the person you like or the person you think will will run the country better. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting walk. Jack Rowley, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back on the program again, my friend. Well, you can find me on Threads now um, at Sadness of Jack, uh, and you can find me on Substack as well, where I write about British and global politics um, at Otters and Insights. We'll link to all those. We'll make sure to put his Substack on our Substack so that it's all linked and recommended to you, my friend. Always appreciate the insight and the time. Great conversation. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, he is back, Gary and Frankel. He's our buddy down at Texas A&M. And if you didn't know that, you can watch the video of this later when we put it on the good talks of his excellent country western background. I'm just waiting on John Wayne to walk up and tie his horse. Great background, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I'm just watching that windmill behind you. That's interesting. Um, let's start here. You were writing in Ordinary Times. Um about the Gaston flag kid for folks that don't know what happened the there's a viral video came out of a teacher and I'm assuming a school administrator of some variety um, talking to this kid about having a Gaston flag patch among other patches he had on his book bag this of course became a cause celeb on right-wing circles and off because here's the thing We've seen this. We can change the name. We can change the kid. We can change what's, what the patch is or the issue is. We see this same thing over, over, and over again. This one got squashed pretty quick because everybody agreed that the, the teachers were overreacting a little bit. Um, but I think we need to talk about it because, again, take the moment out of it. This is a template, and we see the template in the news and in news media and especially in social media over and over and over again. Why did you hone in on the template and not just jump on the story itself? The reason I honed in on the template is because as you said, the story is emblematic of some is emblematic of something bigger in right-wing media. It's whenever somebody under the age of 20 about does something quote unquote based or quote unquote red pilled Everybody immediately just jumps on it. They send this kid's face all around social media. They get invited on some of the largest podcasts in the world, frankly. I mean, with some of the ratings that somebody like Ben Shapiro gets. And their name, their likeness, their image is posted everywhere. They have 10 million articles written about them. And 99 times out of 100, this is somebody who wasn't necessarily seeking fame. This is somebody that was just like every other average Joe walking on the street. And within 24, 48, 72 hours, they suddenly become this online celebrity. 
And when you're young, when you're 12 years old, as in the case of the Gadsden Flag kid, or if you're just some college freshman, you have no idea how to handle that. But the reason so many people pursue fame is because it's tantalizing. And it just sends people down a really dark and destructive path. And I've seen it too many times, including to people that I knew and previously respected. So it it, it hit a nerve for me, and I just kind of had enough. Here's the thing. I have a standing rule where I don't, for the most part, engage with, talk about, or highlight minors. Um, this goes back to the Parkland thing, where, of course, there was a lot of really strong opinions with the Parkland kids. Now, some of them have turned 18 since then and have gone into professional politics. To me, now they're fair game. But when they were under 18, I left it alone. Didn't matter if I could get points on it. I just left it alone. The Greta Thornburg thing, you know, she's older now, but at the time, you know, she was, what, 14, 15 when she first burst onto the scene. This kid, who's clearly way underage, he's like 12 years old, he had the Rittenhouse thing. Both sides, and I hate to do the both sides, so y'all don't like both sides. Well, both sides quit doing it. I'll quit saying both sides are doing it. The media both sides loves to grab kids because kids get attention, and they get very hypocritical when the other side does it, and then they get super protective when their side does it. Using kids in politics is not new. It will continue. It's never going to stop because kids get emotions going. We know that. But is this more of a thing of the consumers of where we just got to say, no, I'm just not going to share stuff with my, that's my rule. That's my standard. I don't make other people adhere to it, but that also keeps me from spreading it and participating in it. And I know that probably doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. That's where I'm at on it. What do you think? Is this something the consumers are just going to have to kind of put a stop to because there's too much money and there's too much and things go viral when there's kids involved, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I completely agree with you. This has always been a part of democratic politics. It always will be a part of democratic politics because, as you said, kids just get people going. The problem is, I think it's beyond just a political issue of who you're using as an activist or when or, oh, this doesn't look good. I think it's a moral issue. I think it is morally wrong to use kids as part of your political agenda. Now, if you wanna talk about children's issues in politics, that's something completely different. But if you're taking this 12 year old kid who nobody in the internet had ever heard of a week ago, and you're suddenly parading them around as some kind of hero, turning them into a celebrity, to me, it's disgusting, it's unacceptable, and God only knows what's going to happen to the poor kid, not just in a couple months, but five years, 10 years down the line, uh, as I mentioned in the article, he had this one really, really concerning quote where he says that he has a ton of friends now because he got big on Twitter. Of course he has a ton of friends now because he got big on Twitter. They're 12. 12 year olds are going to gravitate towards whatever is seen as quote unquote cool or popular. But what happens once that once all that's over? Because eventually, unless he turns into a permanent celebrity, which is another problem, it is going to blow over. What happens then? And nobody is talking about it.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, and here's the thing, Gary and Frankel joining us. If the kid did something you like or you want to rah-rah, that's not the point here. Because yeah. the point is we need to be consistent when it comes to these kids. Because here's the thing, I'm I, I'm in the business side of media, right? I do this. I get not a lot for you to donate. We take PayPal. But you do get some money if you do this correctly. There's a business model to this. The reason it keeps happening is because this feeds the business model that kid's not getting a dime of what Ben Shapiro gets off those hits. His image, his likeness. We're about to have a real generational fight over things like imaging rights, intellectual property. Do you own your own face on digital? Because now we have AI and other things. Do you own your own likeness? We're going to have a big fight in media about these things. We're already got a strike in Hollywood over it. Listen, when this kid gets older, we have this whole rash, and I don't want to broad brush this, but it's a wide problem. We have parents and adults who are perfectly fine making a lot of money off these kids, and these kids aren't getting a dime of any of it, and they're not going to have any way to recoup any of that when they turn 18 and figure out that these people took advantage of them. That bugs me. It bugs me in politics. It bugs me in media. I've gotten to where I can't stand to watch Nickelodeon and Disney preteen shows because I know those kids are getting exploited to high heaven by their parents and Disney and everybody else. This really bugs me. Maybe it's because the age I'm at, my kids are older and they've kind of grown up. But to, to my knowledge, I've never put a picture of my kid that was underage on social media ever. Like I'll block it or something. When are we going to realize what we're doing to entire generations of kids here not just their images, they could have been making money on this and their parents are making money on this and other adults are making money on it. Where's the child labor people throwing a fit about that? Because that's exactly what this is. It really is. And I don't think we're really going to see any sort of intense reaction to all this until some of these internet age kids start growing up and they start filing lawsuits against their own parents. And you know, if some of them get famous enough, they're probably gonna have big money lawyers it's going to involve some big names 
and there's going to be a massive media circus about it that I'm sure other people will make money off of. But it will highlight a real problem in that the internet allows parents to market their children in ways previously thought impossible. And it's not just the parents that are marketing kids. It's think tanks, it's activists, it's podcasters, it's your Ben Shapiro's, Eric Bowling's, and Benny Johnson's of the world. Where does it all end? Where do we draw the line? Because if conservatives are going to talk about being the party of the family and protecting kids, then you have to draw that line somewhere. Otherwise, you're a massive hypocrite, but they don't care about that. They're making money. Yeah, I we just got to be adults on the fact that people get head up on, oh, he had a Gaston patch. Oh, look, and the teacher way overreacted here a little bit. Oh. Um, I, I suspect what happened was they were trying to get in front of this becoming a problem later on, and they just went way overboard on it. Um, we could also talk about how this got videoed and the video got out in the first place. We'll talk about that yeah. some other time. Um, none of the <laughs> poor kids never seem to get caught in these virals. It's always kids whose parents have disposable income and a Rolodex of internet contacts. Funny how that always works. Oh, yeah. I think we just need to understand that when you see something go viral, very little nowadays that goes viral goes viral by accident because it doesn't. Especially, you don't go onto a certain segment. It's what we call back channels in our business, right? right? Like, well, the reason he got directly onto Ben Shapiro is because he got into the back channels that Ben Shapiro and his people are a part of. They're in that ecosystem, right? Same way with. Greta or whoever on the left, you know, they get in that ecosystem. They're going to go certain shows and certain programs. How can folks, when they see a viral thing, give them one or two things to look for of like, okay, this is organic and happening or, okay, this thing looks a lot like a press tour right up front. Maybe I should give this a little more discernment and, and think about this a little more. Uh, some people are very good actors, but I think there are a couple of tells that somebody can look for when investigating a viral video. If the reactions seem genuine, if there's genuine shock and genuine rage, genuine hostility, if you've spent more than, I don't know, an hour on the internet and just scrolling through TikTok or Reels or whatever, you can figure out the difference. You can tell when people are acting and when they're not. And when the whole thing kind of seems like a performance, if there's, you know, some sort of perfect moment, there's a better than zero chance that the whole thing was staged. Now, I do not think this particular situation was staged because teachers overreacted. Teachers overreacted. Teachers overreact to things all the time. It happens. We're human. We all have flaws. But I don't know. It came out immediately that the kid in question was a Total Twins reader and it was the author of the Total Twins stories and media that publicized the situation to begin with, I had to think somebody knew somebody. Somebody knew somebody, and um, I don't want to accuse the kid of fishing for the attention of this, but it kind of feels that way. But we'll see. Look, I, I even if I agree with somebody 
you agreeing with somebody shouldn't kill your discernment on what's going on in front of you. Uh, Gary and Frankel, love having you on. It's a great piece. It's at Ordinary Times. We're going to link to it. It got picked up by a couple different outlets. Um, some folks pushed back. They didn't like this one because they like their feel-good stories of the, oh, yeah. of the kid push. And But look, this isn't one of those viral videos where somebody, like the kid was enjoying this meeting. Like when you watch the video, like he oh, yeah. knew... He knew, he knew that he was about to have his moment out of this, and the teacher was overreacting and being kind of a jerk about it. Uh, Gary and Frank, let folks know where they can keep up with you and what else you have going on. When you're not fighting the good fight, when you're just doing your usual Texas Aggie thing where you just you know say things and sit in front of windmills. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, y'all can find me on Twitter at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. And aside from this stuff, I got like four different academic projects in the works. I'm writing two to three articles a month at least. So I've always got something cooking. Yep. And uh, Texas A&M's all up in the news, too. We'll talk about him next time we have him on. He down there. We'll pay attention to them. Uh, may you lose all football games, but may you keep your head when the Washington Post comes to do investigations, my friend. Gary and Frankel, appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of Bird Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the Twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of, things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. we got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Herdtell.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media. Herdtell Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fire is my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X. But if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just 
do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.